What's happening, family? Welcome to Building Without a Blueprint with your boy, your host, your friend, Princeton Parker. I'm so glad you came back to hang out with us again. Happy New Year, fam. Wow. Glad to know that you made it on the other side of a new year. Here we are with a new time, a time for restart, a time for refresh, a time to reimagine what is possible in our lives when we are bringing our full selves and we are bringing our healed selves and we are bringing our full ability and commitment to do the work when we're fully trusting in God and when we're fully just being open to what can come out of life. Well, we're going to kind of begin this year on the podcast the way we ended it which was unpacking how do we take a look at love, at life, at relationships, at wholeness and at trauma so that we can look towards how do we become whole on the inside so that we can then pursue whatever we're building on the outside. So uh, we only made it through three lessons. I need to make it through the rest. So let's get right to it. Uh, Remember, when we first talked about it in lessons one through three, we were talking about how your trauma is not your fault, but it is your responsibility. We were just kind of unpacking that idea that you have to own what has happened in your experience. You have to say, hey, look, it wasn't my fault that it happened, but it is my fault that I pick it up and then I make sure that I heal from it. Two, we talked about the fact that when you meet someone, they don't have to be perfect. You just want to know, have they started at part one, which is to take ownership of what has happened before you. We're all going to have scars. We're all going to have things that we've been through. And some of that stuff doesn't get healed in an instant. Some of that stuff we will spend the rest of our lifetime just kind of unfolding and learning about and learning different facets of, but have they taken ownership of it? And lesson three was, are you prepared for the person who you're in a relationship with or in friendship with to outgrow you? And can you love them when they do that? And have you accepted that as a healthy part of life? So here we go. Let's get started. We're continuing with part two of the 10 lessons that I took from the great film, A Star is Born. Let's dig in. Lesson number four, all healing begins with childhood. All healing begins with childhood. Jack and Allie show us that at different times in the film, we get sort of teasers into their lives with their family. Oddly enough, both of them had issues with their father. And those issues became the surface of all their problems. Those issues became the surface or, excuse me, they became the foundation rather for Jack self-medicating and for Ali's self-loathing. In order for them to be healed, they had to go back and deal with their childhood. I'm a firm believer theologically that Because God created the world perfectly, we have a lot to understand about about God from Genesis. I even believe that the first three chapters can tell us a lot about who God is, his sort of intention for mankind and and the design of the world. In Genesis 1, 2, and 3, we get things like the concept of seed time and harvest, right? We get the concept of stewardship and environmentality. We get the concept of commitment and co-equal partnership. We get the concept of there being no separation and no inequality between the genders. The Bible says male and female created he, them. And the Bible says the instruction to be fruitful and multiply was given to both of them, that God gave a commandment to the man and the woman. So there was no separation. There was no, the man is up here and woman is down here. We we get from Genesis that there was a kind of co-equal partnership 
We get ingenuity, design, creation, the intelligence of man. We get God's development of science. We get his development of process and intelligence, right? And so I believe that when we have kind of quandaries of understanding as far as the Bible is concerned, whether it relates to Jesus or the church or the world, we can go back to Genesis. I don't just believe that from a theological perspective. I believe that from an emotional health perspective. I believe that in order to heal, we've got to start from our beginnings. Let me pause and say that I believe that this is what the definition of the work is. Everybody's running around talking about, I'm doing the work, I'm doing the work, I'm doing the work. And what most people you know, would say when they do that is that they're going to the gym and losing weight. I'm working on my credit. I'm going to take a few trips and do me, right? I'm going to get a new job. I'm going to hustle hard and build my brand. Those things are great. That's the hustle, but it's not the work. The work is this. This is Princeton Parker's definition of the work. The work means to go back to the experiences of your childhood and to unpack how those experiences shaped your the way you see the world, the way you see yourself, and the way you interact with others. It's the definition of the work. The work is about unpacking the story of your childhood and the experiences of your childhood to understand how they shaped the way you see the world, the way you see yourself, and the way you interact with others. When you do that, now you can begin to understand this word, patterns, patterns. When I observe patterns, I can then begin to make different choices. And a number of consistent different choices will then convert into healing and wholeness over time. When I unpack my childhood, that's the work. I will uncover patterns. Oh, wait, my mom did this. That's why I do this. My dad did not do this. That's why I look for that through this. I'm going to start to uncover patterns. Wait, my family has always held secrets or we typically don't talk about things or we do hold things in or alcoholism has been a consistent thing in my family. Nobody has had a stable marriage or nobody ever unpacked what happened the generation before then. Sexual assault has happened to multiple people in my family. There are multiple survivors who instead of processing and finding healing, um, sort of absorb that guilt and then allow that to absorb that guilt and, and under the weight of that guilt, pursue relationships that aren't healthy for them. And that's why I do it because instead of processing that and being able to kind of face that head on, there's an internalized belief that I deserve that. And so the abuse kind of continues, right? Whatever the patterns might be, Patterns of secrecy, patterns of mishandling finance and money management, right? Most of us have patterns that our parents demonstrated for us. Instead of being healthy with finance, they try to live a life. So we learned that it is better to, to look like you have the life than to actually live it. Whatever the patterns might be, patterns because of unmet needs when you were a child. I did not get this. I suffered abandonment. So because of that abandonment, I overshare in conversation because oversharing makes me feel like I have a sense of comfort because nobody would listen to me when I was a kid. For some reason or for some people, that's the reason why they lie. 
They lie not because they, they have to, they lie because they have to over-dramatize their lives because no one would listen to them when they would say that they were hurting as a kid. So now they're older, their pattern is to overstate the truth or to just flat out lie about what happened to get you to believe. I need you to care about me because when I was a kid, nobody did, right? When you dive into your childhood, you pull out those patterns. Those patterns then, now that you see them, you can just make a different choice. It's not your fault. You have to feel bad about them. It's just life. It just comes as a result of childhood trauma. But when you begin to then make different decisions as a result and a number of consistent different decisions, that over time will equal healing. That over time will lead you towards wholeness. That over time will lead you towards healthy living. That over time will lead you towards deliverance. That over time will lead you towards peace. That over time will lead you towards maturity. Their healing began with their childhood. Jack's entire abuse, the pill abuse, the alcoholism was rooted in the fact that his father didn't see him. The most powerful moment in the film, I'm going to say this a million times, the most powerful moment, (laughs) one of the most powerful moments in the film is when Jack is sitting at rehab with his therapist and they talked about his dad and he talks about how he tried to commit suicide at 12 by hanging himself from the ceiling fan. And he said, and the whole darn thing collapsed and he fell on the floor with the fan and they have a laughing moment. But he says this and it hit me to my core. He said, the guy didn't even notice. Could you imagine that pain? Not only does your dad not even see you, not even trying to kill yourself could get him to look in your direction. He had to live life numb because he wasn't seen. You don't know pain until you have thousands, thousands, thousands who know your name. Jackson, Maine, Jackson, Maine, Jackson, Maine. And all you want is for one person to look at you and see your gift. For one person, your father, your mother, to look at you and say, I'm so proud of you. Jackson never had that. And so anytime, anytime that piece was triggered, anytime that was triggered, wait, I'm not seen, I'm not seen, I'm not seen, then what came out was rage, what came out was departure, or what came out was, I need another drink. When he got invited to be on the Grammys to do that tribute, but they pulled him and said he wasn't going to sing, he wasn't going to be the lead, he was just going to play guitar. That was another moment. Wait, I'm not seen. So what did he do? He got high on cocaine. Because that that thing was triggered. But when he was in rehab, he went back to his childhood and said, wait, that's the reason. So when he came out of rehab, he went and apologized to his brother. He had a whole new outlook on his relationship with Allie. And he had a whole new relationship with the alcohol because he had gone back to the root. My grandmother used to taught me when she was teaching me how to pray. She said, Princeton, you need to pray, Lord, curse it at the root. Why? Because if you kill the limbs, but not the root. The same thing will grow over and over again. Let me say this again. If you kill the limbs, but not the root, the same thing will grow over and over and over again. You know this. I don't have to tell you this. All addiction is some form of medication. It's the symptom. It's not the root. We have to go to what void were you trying to fill with that? Now, Allie had her trauma too. Her father, though in her life, didn't believe in her gift and reinforced negative beauty standards on her 
And not only did he enforce negative, unrealistic, constructed beauty standards on her, but he cited those beauty standards, those Eurocentric beauty standards, as the reason why she wasn't successful. He said, you're a great vocalist, but you'll never make it because you don't fit the beauty standard. So she grew up feeling like, not only did she feel like I'm not enough because I don't meet this standard, this constructed standard, but I'm not enough because my, my gift, I'm talented, but my gift is not enough to get me there. So not only did she feel less than from a looks perspective, but she held on to her gift. The world will not hear me, though I am phenomenal because I don't look the part. And she internalized that. And so she had to get to the point where it wasn't just about Jackson pulling her on the stage and saying, you can do it. It was about her getting to the point where she could hear her own voice over her father's. Wow. Can I speak life to you and let you know that you will get to the point? where you will hear the voice of healing louder than your dad's voice. Hear me, louder than your mother's voice. You will get to the point where you hear the voice of healing. And that will matter to you more than the voice of condemnation, more than the voice of you're not enough, more than the voice of you're not pretty enough, more than the voice of you're not talented enough, more than the voice. So many of you have grown up hearing somebody say to you, you'll never be, you'll never be, or this is all you are, or somebody always commenting on your weight, always commenting on your grades, always commenting on your relationship status, always commenting on your dreams, always commenting on your intellect, always commenting on your disability. I release you from that. So if you go back and unpack it, face it, it's going to hurt. But if you face that that is what you dealt with, that that is the trauma and that that has created certain patterns in what you choose and what you look for and how you see yourself and how you see the world, you will get to the point where the voice of healing rings so much louder in your ears and you will make a different decision. You will not shrink down anymore. You will not hold yourself in anymore. You will not just tuck in, but you will stand firm to know that this is who I am. This is what I have to contribute. And I deserve to stand and walk in healing. All healing begins with childhood. I know you lost 20 pounds and I know you just got back from your trip to Spain. And I know that you finished your first album and you got a great job and you finished your master's degree. But trauma's weird in that it'll wait until you get good and alone <laughs> or good and successful. And it will remind you that um, I'm still here because the real work is going back to unpack your childhood. If you go back to Genesis, it will eventually bring revelation. Oh God, that's so good. Hear me clearly. If you go back and unpack Genesis, it will give you revelation. Tell me something, girl Are you happy in this modern world? Or do you need more? Is there something else you're searching for? I'll fall in In all the good times I find myself longing for change and in the bad times I fear myself
Aren't you tired trying to fill that void? Or do you need more? Ain't it hard keeping it so hardcore? I'm falling In all the good times I find myself longing Times I fear myself. Lesson number five, your trauma impacts more than just you. The reason why lesson number one, it's not your fault, but it's your responsibility. And the reason why you have to take ownership and the reason why you have to be okay with having someone grow beyond you. And the reason why all healing begins with childhood is because your trauma impacts more than you. There's this scene where Jack is high. And remember, he's high because he was triggered again. He's not seen, just like his dad. He's playing background instead of singing lead, high on cocaine. And he messes up her moment. She goes to accept her Grammy for New Artist of the Year and high as a kite. He follows her. He falls on the stairs. Now he's on the stage, a high drunken mess. And then, of course, it happens where he pees on himself during her acceptance speech. Ruins her career, makes a mockery of her. And of course, in true fashion, she is still honing on to him and cradling him in the shower with cold water saying, no, he's okay, trying to raise him back. His trauma and not being able to cope impacted their relationship and her career and her feelings. He said hurtful things to her. She said hurtful things to him. Your trauma impacts more than you. It impacts those closest to you. It impacts the person you're in a relationship with. It will impact your children someday. 
if you don't have any other reason to get whole, may it, there be inspiration in you having wholeness so that your children are not as impacted by your unhealed trauma as you might have been from your parents' unhealed trauma. Your trauma impacts you. It impacts your relationships. It impacts your children. It impacts your friendships. Sometimes because a lot of friendships break up over small disagreements that weren't about disagreements. It was more about somebody being triggered. (laughs) And had you processed that, had you processed your own stuff before we had our disagreement, we could have treated it as the small disagreement that it was, not this big blow up. My mentor, Pastor Hosea Collins, puts it this way, that um, it's like having a sore thumb. If I had recently broken my thumb and didn't have anything on it, you could just tap it. And I would be like, why'd you do that? Why'd you hit my thumb? Why'd you do that? And you'd be like, I, I just I just tapped it. My bad, fam. But because it was sore from something else, it, you didn't break it. But if I don't get healed before you touch it, even if you just touch it, I would be mad at you as though you hurt me or injured me when it was just a soft spot. Your trauma, hear me clearly on this, your trauma impacts the advice you give. Your trauma impacts the advice you give. How many of us have been given bad advice because it came from someone who was bitter? It came from someone who was broken. That impacts. It impacts the advice you give. Well, you're not healed. You don't give sound advice. You give angry advice. (laughs) You give bitter, incomplete, I'm stuck in the middle of the road advice. And if you're in that season, at least give it with a disclaimer. (laughs) At least say, hey, I don't know how to fully deal with this, but I'm gonna give you the best I can for what I have. Last but not least, it impacts your service. Trauma sometimes limits your capacity. You have more to give when you're full. You have more to serve the world. You you are brighter. You are more full. Your advocacy is better. You are... Your your leadership is better. Your ministry is better. Your service is better when you're whole. When you lead from brokenness, it it creates mess. It creates insecurity and, and, and it creates dysfunction. But when you're healed, it empowers people. It strengthens them. People want to be in community with you. They want to be because you just project the wholeness that is on the inside of you. So number five, your trauma impacts more than you. They have this moment where all their trauma came to the surface. She made negative comments about him and his dad. So he made negative comments in the soft spot of her beauty. And it's when it all came to a head because they were unhealed, they continued to hurt each other. And you know why? Because you're too worried about what everybody else is thinking. You can't even concentrate on one thing. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, you couldn't be my dad if you tried. He had more talent in his finger than you had in your whole body. So don't even go there about that, all right? That's over the line. Why don't you have another drink and we can just get drunk until we disappear, okay? Hey, do you got those pills in your pocket? You're just ugly, that's all. Hey, you got, I'm what? You're just ugly. Get out! Get out! I said get out!
If I had the courage I'd know just what to do Sometimes I have to crawl And every day I fall Trying just to stand Lesson number six, you must ask every relationship, how do we first connect? Every relationship that you have, you should interrogate, how did we first connect? Because it will reveal one of two things. It will reveal that the foundation of your relationship was good and might need to be revisited and nurtured, or it might mean that the found or it might reveal that the foundation of your relationship was in fact dysfunctional and is unstable and should be plucked up and destroyed. <laughs> Sorry, that was kind of harsh, but it's the truth. Jack and Allie had to do this tease out. Right. And they were always doing that of going back to the beginning of their relationship. So I remember one of my favorite parts of the movie is when Jack at the very end of the film, before Allie's about to leave to the final concert, before the ending, he calls her and he says, Allie, she turns around and he says to her, Allie. And she says, what? And he was like, I just wanted to look at you or something like that one more time. And what she does is she takes her hand and like swipes it from the top of her forehead down her nose. And that's a nod to a couple of things from the very beginning of their relationship. It's a nod to the fact that that's what he said when he dropped her off at home after their very first night together, their very first date. She was going her, you know, to her door and he said, hey, you know, called her and he's like, I just wanted to get another look at you. But she did that thing with the nose because she was talking about in their very first conversation how much she didn't like her nose. And, you know, he was saying, I think it's fantastic. Right. And he was like, it's, you know, it's big and it's great. And so he was like, can I touch it? And he does this thing where he swipes her forehead down her nose. Right. In that moment, at the very end of the film, he's making reference to the beginning of their relationships. And I think we have to interrogate how the layers of time and the layers of relationship allow some of our relationships to lose the simplicity of what brought us together. Sometimes our relationships are strange just because we've lost the simplicity. Like, you know, you used to connect with your friends over a scandal or over football or over music or over, you know, going to fun events or museums. And then somewhere along the way of just trying to do life or whatever we became, right? Sometimes becoming a title is some of the some of the best and worst things, right? You get married and you forget that what brought you together is that you were friends in college. And so, you know, you haven't stayed up late and watched a movie with pizza and Chinese food like you did in college, right? Or or whatever that might be. Or, you know, you haven't just taken a walk 
in a park and and just enjoyed nature or whatever that might be. Or friends who under the pressure of becoming bros or becoming sisters and spending so much time and having expectations forgot what it was to just sit and hang and, and play video games or whatever that might be. So sometimes you have to revisit the simple things that brought you together. I'm very deep. <laughs> um, I was in a therapy session and my therapist said this to me as I was just going through, you know, life and and working through life and dating and all that stuff. And she was like, you're you're deep. And she was like, and that could be very off-putting to, to people, to a friend, to a girl when you first meet them. Because not everything has to be that deep. Like some things can just be light. Like embrace the lightness of life. And I realized that because I live in a whole, like, I have to do it. I have to get it done. I have to fix it. And like, I'm hyper achieving, like everything. I, I live 10 years out, but not everything is that deep. And I was watching the movie, realizing that, yes, it's about trauma. And yes, it's about addiction and emotional and, and mental illnesses. It's also about the lightness of life, the lightness of music, the lightness of, I'm going to quit this job because I don't feel like this and I'm going to go to a concert. <laughs> the lightness of it. And sometimes we lose that because we forgot how we became friends in the first place. We forgot how we became lovers in the first place. We forgot why we joined that organization. We forgot how we got introduced to that career. Sometimes you could be so pressed to make another album creatives or to write another book or to put out another movie or another blog post or another Instagram picture that you could forget how and why you fell in love with it in the beginning. You can forget how and why you fell in love with it, how you connected with it. So it might be interesting to revisit that and to strengthen that foundation. Now let's go the reverse. The reverse is this. Be careful when brokenness is the foundation of your relationship. Be careful when brokenness is the foundation of the relationship. Here's why. If we both came together because we just filled a void in one another, then we have to ask ourselves, what happens when the void gets filled? If our relationship is based on a void, then how does it sustain? Or what happens when I find someone or something that fills that void better than you? Or worse, how do we ever grow outside of filling each other's voids? It's so important to interrogate, like, do I really love you or do you just fill a void? And that is a hard internal conversation to have. Do I really love you or do you just get to fill the space that my dad should have taken up? Do I really love you or do I just like the fact that when I'm with you, I don't have to be alone because I just don't like to be alone because I don't love myself. <laughs> You have to interrogate, was brokenness the foundation of your relationship? For Jack and Allie, so much of it was, right? Like, they were each other's void fillers. Now, I'm not discounting that they shared true love, because I believe they did. I believe they had a very genuine, true, strong love for each other. But I believe that they had to tease out that some of the foundation of how they came together was brokenness. Now... If the foundation of the relationship is brokenness, then we can't be upset when dysfunction is revealed later on. We built this on, on voids. We built this on unhealed trauma. We built this on being that for each other and on holes. So we can't be upset when dysfunction gets revealed later on. 
we can't get upset when those patterns explode or when they reveal themselves later. Why? Because we built our relationship on this. So number six, go back to the beginning of your relationship and figure out, did we build on brokenness? Let's build on healing. Or find out, did we build on friendship and on true love? And maybe you need to go revisit that. Butters on the sky Burning in your eyes You look at me Babe, I wanna catch on fire It's buried in my soul Like California gold You found the light in me That I couldn't find so when I'm all choked up but I can't find the words Every time we say goodbye, baby, it hurts When the sun goes down and the band won't play I'll always remember us this way Lovers in the night Though it's trying to ride We don't know how to rhyme But damn, we try But all I really know You're where I want to go The part of me that you Lesson number seven, we just talked about not building on brokenness, right? 
The reason why is because of the seventh lesson that I took away. Healing sometimes changes the nature of relationships. Healing sometimes changes the nature of relationships. So one of the most interesting moments to me that that caught me was Allie goes to visit Jack in rehab. And this is after he's done the work of unpacking his childhood with a therapist and he's making really great headway. And she sits with him and she says, we're waiting for you, for you to come home. And she says, are you coming home? And he says, what do you mean? Like, of course I'm coming home. Like, why would you say anything like that? And she was like, no, I, I, I just didn't know if that's what you wanted. Now watch this. She says, when we were together, we were together when you were drunk, when you were drinking. Now that you don't drink, I did not know if you would still want us. What she's saying is we built on brokenness. So I don't know if the healed you still wants to love me now that I am not a part of filling that void, right? Now that I'm not a part of that drunkenness, now that I'm not a part of that numbing, now that I'm not a part of that self-medicating, do you still want me and us and our relationship? Now, of course, he went to go soothe her and to say, I love you. Like, of course I want us. Why would you ask that? But she asks a valid question. Do you love me healed? Do you still want this now that you're whole? Why? Because when you're healed, <laughs> you start to look at people differently. When when you're healed, the stuff that that people used to offer, that used to feel like an offer to you, that that was something that would buy them space in your life, just doesn't suffice anymore. I'm healed. You got to do more than just offer me a kickback or good sex or the opportunity to get high. Like, I, 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 I don't need that to medicate anymore. So now you've got to show up with more now. You've got to meet my soul on a hundred and a hundred. So sometimes healing will change the nature of relationships. Sometimes when you're healed, you stop calling certain people all the time because you're healed. <laughs> Sometimes you stop going to certain places, you stop doing certain things, your lifestyle. I really begin, I really believe that when, that the best way to tell that a person's healed is to watch their lifestyle. Because lifestyle patterns will change. You won't go to certain places, like, because the void that those things and those people used to fill has been filled. So I think it was possible or it rather was powerful that she acknowledged that. She says, I wasn't sure if you were gonna come home now that you were sober. I want you to look at your life and just ask yourself, will I need these things as I heal? If I was good and completely loved me and you know didn't carry these insecurities and if I had unpacked what happened to me and my childhood and all those things, would I still be in this relationship with this person? Would I still be friends with that person? Would I still go to that particular church? Would I still have that particular job? Would I still choose to spend my extracurricular time X, Y, and Z way? Because healing has the power to change all that. I can't believe the things you say. Right now I wish that you would try. Try to stay near me. Try to be near me before I cry. Because I am going to need a way. To catch the pain and lift the spell That you will hear me Can you try and heal me Before I cry Hurry up, hurry up Before I lose you Hurry up, hurry up Before you lose me too Hurry up, 
Lesson number eight, I learned what to give someone who has it all. Have you ever looked at someone in your life, a friend, a coworker, a boss, a mentor, a mentee, a lover, and, and thought to yourself, they really have it all. And what's crazy is when you look at that, you struggle from how to be friends with them because you're like, they're popular. People love them. They're wise. They seem strong. They... And and I don't know how to be in relationship with you because I don't see myself, watch this, as having anything to offer. I realized that in my own life, I grew up thinking that people just didn't think I was cool. <laughs> I grew up thinking that 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 I wasn't one of the people. Now I I had I was extremely popular all throughout school. And I really did have some good friendships along the way. But I always was wondering, like, why are people kind of, you know, like wanting to really, you know, and it was because not because they didn't like me. I realized later on in life, they looked at me and thought, like, he good. He popular. You know, he's got his thing going on. He's mature. He's talented or whatever they thought. And so people didn't approach. And the reason why I know that feeling is because I have that feeling, (laughs) 
when I get to hang out with my mentor, Jonathan Sprinkles, who I love, like I used to have a hard time relating because I'd be like, he's so cool. What do I have to provide to this relationship? Because he's so cool. That's what I would think sitting at the table, right? And you're meeting and networking with people who are like three and four and five and seven and 10 levels above you. You're like, you are rich. You got followers. You got influence. I want to give something to this relationship so I don't just look like a muture who came to get put on. So what can I give? Let me help you. What do you give someone who has it all? The gift of being seen as a human being. Let me repeat that. What can you give someone who has it all? You can give them the gift of being seen as a human being. Let me help you. You've been struggling with how to relate to that person who seems like they have a lot of money. They want to be seen as a human being. You've been struggling on how to relate to that person who is so talented. Like, how can we possibly relate? You're so talented. I want you to give me lessons. No, they want to be seen as a human being. Come here, men. Let me talk to you for a second. So much of what you've been taught is that what you give a woman, quote unquote, is this, you know, you must provide, you must do this, right? That your value is based upon what you can do and how you perform. And so what that does is it makes you intimidated when someone is able to provide and or speak up for and or lead their lives as they should. And so now your masculinity is thrown off because you're like, oh, I don't I don't know what I could give. And that foolishness is still being perpetuated where we're telling like, hey, ladies, lay low, give the man something to do. No, no, that's false. It's rooted in patriarchy, it's rooted in subservience, and it's rooted in this idea that you haven't been taught what to adequately give. Even when your partner has it all, male or female, they still have a desire and a longing to be seen, valued, loved, and accepted as a human being. I don't care how rich I get, I want you to see me. I don't care how powerful I am. I want you to see me. I don't care how much I preach and how well I exegete the scriptures and how many people I lay hands on. I don't care how many people listen to this podcast. I need people at the end of the day who allow Princeton to be Princeton. And the people I keep close around me are the people who have allowed me to just be. And those are people who don't give me money, a platform, extra speaking opportunities or anything. I don't need that. They might not be able to tell me about scriptures. They might not be able to help me navigate the call, but they give me the gift of being a human being at the end of the day. And I'm so grateful for it. Here are a couple of things you give the person who seems like they have it all. Number one, they don't have people who will tell them the truth. They have people who tell them what they want to hear because they have an inside motive and they're afraid to take anybody off. I won't tell you the truth because I don't want to lose <laughs> what I have. So I'm just going to tell you what I think you want to hear so that I can still get what I want to receive. People who seem to have it all don't have people who will speak life into who they are, not what they do. People who seem to have it all always get compliments about having it all. You're so talented. You're so pretty. I cannot tell you how many girls who are pretty would love to get a compliment other than you're pretty. I'm sure there are so many young women and women who desire to be seen for more than their looks. Like, like, please speak into my soul. Like anybody can objectify me. Like, thank you. I'm, I'm pretty. There's more to me. A lot of people who tell me I preach well, the best compliments I enjoy are people who compliment my heart. Like, it's very easy for people to be like, you are such a great preacher or whatever they say. But when people say like, hey, yo, fam, I see your heart, dude. Like your heart's in the right place. That stuff brings me to tears. People who seem to, quote unquote, have it all, don't have people who will compliment who they are not having it all. 
People who have it all don't have people who are unmotivated by their own progress. It's so dope when you have somebody in your life who's not motivated by trying to come up or trying to get put on or trying to get exposed or trying to hang out because they think you are this, that, and the third. When you can show that you can be in somebody's life just because you enjoy being around them, that's a gift. Now, when you do this, you have to be sincere about it because if you're not, then eventually that will be seen and it will be worse than if you had just come up with a business proposal. So if you show up to somebody's life and try to do all these things and be genuine and see them and compliment who they are, but it reveals over time that that wasn't your true motive, that would have been worse than had you just walked up to me and said, hey, Princeton, I want to be your friend so I can get put on to, to motivational speaking. I prefer that because I could at least identify that quicker as opposed to you trying to play like you were there for me genuinely and then you switch up. What do you give the person who has it all? The gift of just letting them be human. See them, love them, speak life into them, learn about their interests, listen to them, hear their hurts and share yours. Have great conversations, fall in love. Not just romantic love, fall in familial love. Fall, fall in love with your friends. Fall in love with, with your faith community. Fall in love with your church again. See it for, for what it is. That's a gift. That's a gift. I don't care how much money. You might not have a dime to your name. You might not have but 10 followers and five of them is fake hair pages. <laughs> but you can give the gift of seeing somebody. And that gift is priceless. When we gave our vows at the altar, I just didn't get to say everything that I wanted to say. So I wrote it down and I brought it here. I hope it's okay if I love you forever, Jack. Life is so simple. A little boy, a little girl. Laughing and loving Trying to figure out the world It felt like summer When I kissed you in the rain And I know your story But tell me again Nothing you say wouldn't interest me All of your words are like poems to me I would be honored if you would take me as I am You're still with me When I'm not quite myself And I pray that you'll lift me When you know I need help It's a warm celebration Of all of our years I dream of our story Of our fairy tale 
family dinners and family trees Teaching the kids to say thank you and please Knowing if we stay together that things will be right We come towards the end of the film and, and Jack has come out of rehab and he and Allie have reconnected in such a powerful whole way. He's walking in the wholeness of having unpacked his childhood and rehab and learning how the addiction was medicating towards that. She has unpacked her father's voice and kind of come into her own and knowing that she was good enough just as she was and she's leaning into that reality for herself. And here they go, being able to to live the best of their love, right? Because it was always there, but now they're going to live the best of it in a very whole and healthy way. And Rez, Ali's manager, has a conversation while Ali's gone to remind Jack of his past and to remind him of the ways in which it negatively impacted Ali. And he begins to be triggered about him not being worth it and him not being worth anything. And it triggered that spot again, that he wasn't seen, that it would be better if he was not there. So unfortunately, while Allie is at her show, Jack is supposed to meet her. And in a fit moment of believing that life would be better if he were not around, a thought that he had toyed with since his childhood, he hangs his hat. He takes a capsule of pills and he takes his life. It leaves Bobby, his brother, grieving. It leaves Allie grieving leaves even their dog grieving. Allie was sitting in their home with Bobby, Jack's brother, after Jack had committed suicide. And Allie begins to say that she felt like it was all her fault. She starts to go into retrospect and an aspect of grief that is laden with guilt. Bobby, Jack's brother, looks at her and says to Allie, it wasn't your fault. It wasn't your fault. It wasn't my fault. It was nobody's fault but Jack's. Let me say that lesson number nine is that the hardest part of grief and relationships is being able to know what wasn't your responsibility. I've talked a lot about ownership in this exercise because ownership is important. You have to learn how to own what is your stuff. But the other side of that coin is that you have to learn how to let go of what is not your stuff, what is not your fault. What is not your responsibility? What is not your fight? And I just want to tell you that it wasn't your fault. How your mom responded to what happened in her own life was not your fault. Your dad's inability to work through his pain and, and his resort to medicate that or to turn to violence was not your fault. Those things they said to you, those things they did to you, that assault was not your fault. That friend who fought as hard as they could, 
as long as they could and unfortunately lost their battle to their mental illness or to their fight with life or whatever that might have been was not your fault. And I know that you sit up at night wondering, maybe if I had called more, maybe if I had reached out, maybe if I had apologized, maybe I had done this, I release you. I release you from the guilt. I release you from the what if. I release you from the condemnation. But most of all, I release you from the shame. Cry as much as you need to process and grieve, but know that it was not your fault. And I'm going to take it here. God wants you to know that it was not your fault. He's not hanging it over your head. He's not condemning you. He's not putting weight and pressure saying, why didn't you do this? You could have stopped this. No, you couldn't have because it was bigger than you. And it's not your fault. I say to you what Bobby said to Ali, guilt won't make the grief go away. It's not your fault. Tell me I'm too far gone I can't go on if I ain't living in your arms Please don't tell me I'm too far gone I can't go on if I ain't living in your arms Please don't tell me I'm too far In that same conversation, Bobby, Jack's brother, decides to come to a moment of healing with Allie. He shares that there used to be a time where he would listen to Jack's music and it would just make all the pain worse in his memory. But then he says that now he listens to Jack's music and it, it, is a, it's a, it provides a sense of healing for him. And he starts to talk about 12 notes and how Jack said they were just 12 notes. That's all there were. That's what music was, was just 12 notes that repeat over and over in different octaves. And that what artists do is they tell stories with those same 12 notes. Every artist gets the same 12 notes. Can I say to you, fam, that lesson number 10 that I take from A Star is Born is that out of all of this, what we get is the power of our story. The Bible says in Revelation that there are only two things by which people overcome from a faith perspective, and that is the blood of the lamb shed by Jesus Christ and the word of their testimony. That's a big deal that the thing that is equated from a power standpoint with the blood of the Savior, this sacrifice for the sins and healing of all humanity is the word of their testimony, your story of what you have been through and survived and overcome has the power to help others do the same. Can I tell you that your trauma, your relationships, your ups and your downs, your successes and your failures, 
the things that you did well, the things that you didn't, every time you spoke up and every time that you held back, every fight that you have, every negative word that was spoken over you and every time that life was spoken into you, every dream that you had that was deferred, every dream that has been manifested and every one that is yet a seed in the soil of the imagination of your mind, the medicine you had to take, your illnesses, the things that you came through, the things that you survived, your dreams, your visions, your goals, your fashion, your style, the time that you have spent cultivating your writings and cultivating the way that you speak, your personality, the way that you like to wear and style your hair. Can I inform and affirm in you that all those things are your 12 notes and God gave them to you so that you could form them in whatever way you needed to to tell your story? I believe that a star is born not through the stage, not through having your songs heard across the world, not through finding your voice. A star is born through their story. On the other side of your story, you find out who you are. On the other side of your story, you find out why you were created and put on this earth. On the other side of your story, you find out who you were sent here to help. And on the other side of your story, you find a million more reasons to celebrate your beauty, to celebrate the handiwork of an almighty God in your life. I don't know what you've been through, but don't be silent anymore. Tell your story. Tell your story of love. Tell your story of heartbreak. Tell your story of self-discovery. Tell your story of your dreams. Tell your story as you see it. Tell your story of heights and worlds and ideas unknown. Tell your story of resistance and struggle and overcoming. Tell your story of being blatantly and flagrantly beautiful in spaces that do not accept you. Tell your story. Tell your story of your heartbreak. Tell your story of the abuse. Tell your story of survival. Tell your story of victory. I don't know who you are or where you are. I don't know what you're doing. I don't know what you've been through as you listen to your uh, to this podcast, but can I speak life in you and tell you that you must at all costs share your story? You may not be ready right now. It may still be in progress right now. You might not see how it all is going to work out, but let me speak over you the power and the courage and the tenacity to look at the world firmly and boldly in their faces. And I say to you, as God said to Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter one, he said, be not afraid of their faces for I am with thee to deliver thee, saith the Lord. But look at them and challenge yourself to say, what do I see? Not their faces, but I see my story. And as you see it, share it. It, and it will change the world. And out of sharing your story will come love. It might hurt, but share it. There's healing in it, and the world needs it. Jack talked about how music is essentially 12 notes between any octave. 12 notes, and the octave repeats. It's the same story told over and over forever. All any artist can offer the world is how they see those 12 notes. That's it. <laughs> he loved how you see them. Thank you for being here tonight to honor my husband. He wrote a song for me. I'd like to sing it for him tonight. And with your help, maybe I can. Thank you. Really.
Thank you. Stranger 
Well, family, that's all I have time for. I hope that that helped you and that that blessed you in some way. Listen, if it did, I would love to hear from you. Shoot me an email at buildingwithprinceton at gmail.com. That's buildingwithprinceton at gmail.com. Or hit me up on Facebook, on Twitter, or on Instagram, all of which are at Princeton Parker. You can even follow the new Facebook page, which is at Princeton Speaks on Facebook. And uh, I definitely want to get in touch with you. I, I want you to let me know how this helped you. And it would help us a lot if you would rate the podcast, subscribe, but most of all, share this with someone. I've seen a a lot of you tag me uh, specifically on Instagram when you found out about this from someone. So I really appreciate that. Please continue sharing. But most of all, around the podcast, keep doing the work, keep doing the work and investing in your wholeness. And that, that the process of healing is how true stars are born. Well, remember with God as your foundation and purpose as your motivation, keep building family.